Hey, this is Mark A. Altman of Inglorious Trexperts in the 430 movie. And if you're a fan of our podcast, you don't want to miss Deck 78, available now by subscribing at trexpertsplus.com. This is a bonus podcast full of great discussions about popular culture, film, and television. And on this episode, don't miss our in-depth discussion with showrunner director Kenneth Johnson about the 40th anniversary of V, The Incredible Hulk, Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, and of course, Bigfoot. Here's a sneak peek. But it was, Brennan was in a hurry. And um, normally to do a four-hour miniseries with a cast of almost 70 people, um, you'd have, what, four or five months just to prep Right, you know, right. the whole thing, just to build the stuff you needed and all of that. And um, uh, and four or five months. And from the weekend when Brandon read my full first draft script and said go until the day I said action was two and a half weeks. Oh, my God. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, they, wow. Yeah, people, yeah, most people like you, most people in the industry go, no, you didn't. That's bullshit. You I'm, know, casting, yeah. prep, locations. I mean, it's, and, yeah. and it, it, it is script is one thing, but that's crazy. That's extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was insane. And, uh, and how did it, how did it happen? Well, it happened because Brandon really needed it for February or thought he did. And, uh, uh, and he knew that I could deliver and deliver fast as I had in the past. But I said, geez, guys, you know, uh, so I said, okay, look, I'll do the best. We will do the best we can. And, uh, and we started shooting literally two and a half weeks after he said, go. Um, and I know I obviously we had stuff that we were beginning to line up. I had always already corralled almost all of my, uh, crew from the incredible Hulk at universal to bring them over, to be with me at, uh, uh, at Warner's. I brought along Chuck Davis, who had been my production designer on Prometheus and on, on the whole incredible Hulk series and bionic woman uh, before that, um, Chuck, who always would tell me, is this the best we can do? You know? And, uh, um, a brilliant guy. And uh, I, I, <laughs> that's a whole other story. But um, so I had I had a team that had been working together for, you know, for over five years uh, that really spoke the same language and a brilliant cinematographer in John McPherson uh, and my composer, Joe Harnell, who uh, and I knew exactly where I wanted to go with the music and all. Um, so I was had begun to line things up, but it wasn't until Brandon said go that I could say, OK, move everybody in here. Let's start the casting. Let's start the location scouting. And uh, and uh, and this was in a day where there were no cell phones. To, they could show you pictures. The you know they'd have to go take the pictures and bring them back, or they'd have to drag you out to the location. So we're doing all of that and then casting in the afternoons. Uh, and, and in many cases, I, I hired the first actor that they brought me because they happened to hit the ball exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> they anymore, they tell everybody else they can go home. So subscribe today at trexpressplus.com and don't miss a single episode of Deck Seventy Eight. Fire the rockets. Captain Starlog, September 10th, 2153. Our mission was one of peace, but recent events have changed all that. After Earth was brutally attacked by an unknown species, the Zindi, an elite military group joined Enterprise in our search for these aliens. Now we've entered an unknown part of the galaxy, the Delphic Expanse. We don't know what we'll find here, but there's no turning back. Welcome to the Trexperts Briefing Room, where industry professionals curate audio commentaries with the creators, creatives, and diehard fans of the Star Trek franchise. My name is Peter Armstrong. I'm a screenwriter and author, uh, and I recently just submitted a, a new short story to Star Trek Explorer magazine featuring the Voyager cast, which I'll be very nervous to hear what my co-host thinks of it if she ever reads it. Yeah, looking forward to reading that, Peter. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my name is Lisa Klink. I was a writer on uh, Star Trek Voyager for three years and wrote an episode of Deep Space Nine. And I've written three stories for Star Trek Explorer magazine. For the first 50 years of Star Trek's existence, serialization was something of a taboo. The studios, which made their bread and butter from episodic television format, like uh, from Matlock, Murder, She Wrote, or MASH, 
always push back on the desire of the writers to serialize their content, ensuring that even the later seasons of uh, Deep Space Nine, characters would still take time to reset and occasionally play a game of baseball. However, um, season of Star Trek Enterprise, we saw a whole season of television as one back-to-back story, which in my mind is some of the finest seasons of Star Trek ever made. On today's show, we have not one, but two writers who worked on the third season to discuss the penultimate episode of the season, Countdown. Uh, first up, uh, besides his work on Star Trek Enterprise, he's also worked on Desperate Housewives, Ugly Betty, Severance. And even though he told us last time he didn't do much work on the project, I still gush over the fact that he has a story credit on the 1997 film Masterminds. Chris Buck is back in the briefing room. How are you doing, Chris? Uh, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. We're very happy to have you back um, and very excited to talk about this episode. Um, and our other guest, besides Chris, is a returning guest to the show. He spent over 12 years working in the Star Trek galaxy as both a science advisor and a writer. And since then, has worked on uh, shows such as The 11th Hour, Tron Uprising, and most recently wrapped up a three-season run on The Orville. Uh, Andre Bormanis is back in the briefing room. Hi, Peter. How you doing? Doing great. Thank you. Thank you very much again for being here, both of you guys. So, uh, tell me about this episode. How did the, uh, what was the genesis of the, uh, of the story? Andre, do you want to take the, take point on that? I mean, it was the, uh, it's, well, I, I will confess that this is now, as Andre pointed out before we started 20 years ago that we worked on the show, uh, that, uh, some of the cross processes or maybe a little, uh, fuzzy now, you know, but uh, I do remember uh, this long uh, committing to this season long arc of going into the expanse and confronting the Zindi and starting. I remember very specifically that the, the attack on Florida that kicked the whole thing off. Yeah, we um, sometime during the second season, I, I think we started talking about the possibility of doing a, a serialized um, set of episodes. And um, we were doing 26 episodes of Enterprise um, per season at the time. Our order for season three was going to be 24. And Deep Space Nine, of course, had done a, a nine episode arc, which was unprecedented for Star Trek at the time and, and, and very uncommon on television at the time, I think for their final season. And we wanted to do something, you know, equally ambitious. I don't recall exactly when, you know, word came down from Brandon and Rick, Brandon Braga, Rick Berman, executive producers that, Hey, we're going to make the whole season one story, basically a serialized story that will begin with a, a, a traumatic, event and attack on earth and we'll set into motion a whole series of events that will you know be an existential threat to uh you know earth and uh this sort of budding idea of a potential federation with the vulcans and some other alien species so that all started to uh gen the genesis of that i believe was sometime during the second season uh before we went on break uh, and began the third season. Yeah, I remember these, that very often these the big ideas would be, you know, would come out of Rick's office. You know, I, I, I do remember specifically the writing staff a, a lot of times just sitting, sitting around the offices waiting for Brandon to come back from Rick's to sort of say, <laughs> okay, man, here's, here's, here's what's going to happen. And I think this was, I think this bigger, you know, once we got into the breaking of the individual episodes, obviously everybody was involved. But I, but I think this overarching yeah. thing came out of something that Rick and Brandon had cooked up that they wanted to do over the course of the season. And it did, did it, and, and refresh my memory, Andre, it does have a, I, I think we also were trying to sort of come back to the whole temporal Cold War thing that had kind of petered out a little bit that we had, you know, we had left that as kind of a dangling thing that had not it started in the pilot as i recall and then it had never yes. been fully it had never been fully resolved and i i think there was a sense of wanting to have this larger arcing story that that 
that closed some loops on some of those. Um, yeah, the, the temporal Cold War was definitely part of it. And that was something that it's an idea that sounds cool. And I know, Lisa, on Voyager, we we did a, a two-parter, I believe, that involved mm-hmm. some sort of a temporal war and the, the time cops and the future and so forth. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a concept that Brandon always found really intriguing. And this notion that there were different factions that were so advanced that they they had some degree of control over time travel into the past as well as the future. And that this is such a dangerous, you know, technology that they had to have some kind of an accord that we're not going to go mess with each other's timelines. But like with our Cold War from the, you know, late 1940s until the end of the 90s, well, there were these proxy wars like Vietnam and, yeah, you know, the Prague, the Prague Spring and whatever else was going on in the world when the Soviet Union and the United States and its allies were, uh, you know, vying for, you know, greater and greater control of, of, of the globe. And that was a really interesting idea. It's a, it's a hard idea to, you know, to really pan out because, you know, you open all of those trap doors involved in time travel stories. Yeah. But it seemed like something worth pursuing. And we, we came up with this idea of the Delphic expanse as this crazy, scary region of space where, you know, the laws of physics as we understand them don't necessarily apply. And some Klingon crew had gone in there and they came back and they were insane or they were, their bodies were turned inside out because they, you know, passed through a fourth dimension or some weird thing like that. And I remember <laughs> I, I pitched an idea. Chris, you might remember this. I was pretty mocked for it, I think, at the time, uh, because I, I really didn't have a story to go with it. But I always thought, wouldn't it be intriguing if, you know, we're out there roaming around exploring our part of the galaxy and we come across a planet that is completely featureless? It's just a big, perfect sphere. And it has an atmosphere. The surface has no features, no life. It's maybe metallic. It's maybe something else. And... And I didn't have a story to go with. <laughs> so I just thought, what a cool image, you know, what could we make of that, you know, and well, there must be something inside and blah, 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 blah. Well, what's that? Oh, no, I was just listening. I don't, I actually do not remember that pitch, but it's like, I mean, like, I mean, pitches often started with like, oh, here's a cool image. Let's, let's right. sit around and see if we can come up with a, a story that you know that springs from that idea and then sure. sometimes we did sometimes we did and but more I, i'd say probably more often we didn't right well they finally that that idea finally became useful in the uh in in the uh third season of enterprise uh, as as a something that we discover early on i think in the exploration of the expanse after this We've been attacked. We know that the attackers somehow came from this dangerous region of space, and we had to go in and investigate as the only Warp 5 starship available for the task. And we find these big featureless spheres, and there were dozens of them, if not more. And that, that became a kind of a, you know, a mystery that we could uh, unravel over the course of that season. And by the time we get to Countdown, the episode Chris and I wrote, we we discovered that these things were built by uh, a very advanced race of aliens from a, a different dimension, and it was a kind of a prelude to an invasion in our dimension. And the spheres were a kind of a technology that they had developed to essentially take over our region of space. I, I believe that was kind of the idea behind it. They wanted to infiltrate our galaxy and um, transform it into something that that they could live in, which would, of course, ultimately lead to our obliteration. Well, with that, why don't we uh, get right on into the episode here? Um, sure. listeners out yeah, there... that, sounds, that sounds cool. <laughs> yeah, that's not cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, listeners out there, we're going to be watching uh, Season 3, Episode 23 of Star Trek Enterprise, Countdown, written by Andre Bormanis and Chris Black, and directed by uh, Robert Duncan McNeil. Robert McNeil, uh, who's great, who also directed Orville. 
Yeah, and it also uh, was Tom Paris. If uh, yes, listen out there, didn't know that. But all right, in three, two, one, engage. You know, it's amazing to me. I mean, just watching this again, it's like a lot of these special effects really do hold up very well. Yeah. Um, even after, you know, 20 years, as you say. I think this one also won a Emmy, I believe, for visual it effects. It did, for Absolutely. visual yeah. effects, yeah. yeah. There's that oh, creepy thing. Oh, Hawkins. <laughs> Poor Hawkins. So this was the only episode that you two wrote together. Is that right? I believe, yes. The only one that we we shared writing credit on in the sense that basically I wrote the first half of the script, Chris wrote the second half of the script, and then we sewed them together. And Chris did, I think, the final draft and whatever revisions were, were uh, you know, requested by Rick. And mm-hmm. uh, But, you know, we, we collaborated throughout you know, our shared tenure on, on, on enterprise in the writer's room, you know, and breaking stories and, you know, and giving notes on scripts. So yeah, this is the one where for whatever reasons we, uh, you know, we were given the task of writing the teleplay together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in the, the breaking stories and, and you said this is episode 23 out of 24, you know, to, to think now and, into the streaming world where seasons are eight, 10 episodes long to, to look back and go, you know, I, I can't believe we, we managed to bang out 24 of these, you know, my, yeah. my guess is looking back that at, at, you know, the second to last episode of the season, we were probably so hard up against it that it was like, it was neither one of us singly had the time or the resources to write a whole episode on our own. And it was like, let's just, you know, can you, can you write half of one? You write half, I'll write half was kind of, is my guess is probably what happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that that was the case because um, like you said, I mean, we were up against the wall we probably had seven days or something to, you know, get a first draft out. Yeah. And to get a draft out. You know. Yeah, it's amazing to me when you talk about how good these look, we were just looking at the, some of the visual effects in the, in the, in the recap. You know, that the the lead time that you need for visual effects, you know, um, you know, some of the shows I've done more recently, I mean, you know, stuff, they need stuff six months, eight months in advance. And the fact that we were, you know, banging these out 24 episodes, you know, to, to air the, the following fall um, uh, seems crazy to me, you know, and, and that they look as good as they do. Yeah. They, they, they definitely hold up visually. And I think, you know, on a lot of levels, they hold up. We had a great cast and, you know, I think we had a great writing staff and, um, you know, it was a challenge given that, you know, we were the fifth Star Trek series, I think at the time after the yeah. original next gen DS nine Voyager. And, and I think going into the past of the, um, the franchise, the era before Kirk and Spock was, was a smart choice. And, you know, there was a lot of resistance to that at UPN and, um, you know, but I think as, as, as writers, it gave us the opportunity to, you know, revisit a lot of themes and ideas that had been developed on previous incarnations of Star Trek Mm -hmm. and see those stories through the eyes of people who were, more like us and less yeah. like those sort of superhuman heroes of the 23rd and 24th century, mm-hmm. you know, for Captain Kirk beaming down to an alien planet was just another day at the office for, <laughs> you know, for Archer it was like, Oh my God, I'm on an alien planet. <laughs> yeah. that, that perspective really gave us a lot of interesting, you know, character material to play around with, which was one yeah. of the things that was really fun about the show. And, um, you know, Brandon didn't want to have a transporter at all in oh, yeah? the series. And of course the network said, no, Star Trek, you got to have a transporter. And all right, well, we started to use it. You know, we ex- ex- described it as experimental initially, but then of course we, you know, started using it more and more. And I think it's used in this episode. It is quite, mm-hmm. quite instrumentally. Yeah. yeah to, uh, to, to, uh, the dramatic effect, if I recall, but the, I, yeah. it, well, I, it, and we may have talked about this 
previously on this podcast, it was like, and when I first came on board the show, part of the pitch was that this is, this is an X class starship. It's, it's, it's not NCC, it's NX. It, it was for all intents and purposes, experimental. It was a prototype right. and that, that it was the first, the first and only of its class, you know, and that, you know, part of the pitch of the show was that, that they were, you know, shake This was a shakedown cruise. They were field testing this equipment and it didn't all work. You know, and that I think if I recall, I haven't seen the episode in a long time. Archer didn't like to, didn't want to use the transporter. And right. it's a, a plot point in the pilot. And yeah. he wouldn't put his yeah. dog through it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, but I do remember at some point early in the first season, we had pitched some story about them having some, some problem with, you know, the engines not working or, or something. And, and, and Rick saying, no, no, everything, everything works fine. Right. You know, and, and that, that, the, and, and I don't remember the exact circumstances of it or what drove it, but at some point, that whole idea of the, you know, the ship being tested and the crew being tested and, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the the things breaking and them needing to jury rig it and fix it and the transport not working at all, it all just kind of just sort of drifted away. Yeah. Yeah. Now, here we're seeing, uh, two uh, representatives, I guess you'd say, from, from the Zindi. Andre, I, know, I, I believe you were quite instrumental in kind of the creation of the Zindi as a concept, that there's not just one type of Zindi, but there's like multiple from this. Yeah, single... I'm not sure how much I was involved in the concept. I did come up with the name. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. that was often, Brandon was always asking me to come up with names for things. <laughs> and uh, I pitched 10 or 12 different ideas for this multi, you know, um, sentient um, species and uh, Zindi. Uh, I don't know. Might have came come to me because I've got a sister in law named Cindy. Okay. <laughs> I also came up with Captain Proton as the name for the. Uh, but you also, but you obviously couldn't be bothered to make up names for their individual <laughs> subspecies because <laughs> no, the aquatics, the insect. Yeah, <laughs> as I watch it now, it's it's one thing that I do kind of cringe and it, it, it wins a little bit because I it, it does feel like a good dramatically grounded episode you know and yeah. and, and, yeah. It, and when they just keep referring to them as the marsupials or the you know or whatever that you know it was like it was like god could we just we, we couldn't you know they don't even self-identify their own species it's like you know we, you know and I assume maybe it was who, who knows maybe we justified it by saying that's how it was coming through the universal translator to them yeah. it's just yeah. describing yeah. what they were but it's um well it's kind of like you know we call we call the navajo you know i grew up in arizona so i've been to the navajo nation any number of times over the years and we we call them the navajo they call themselves the dine which just means the people we're just the people right. yeah. so there's a little bit of that i think but, sure. yeah. but the idea that there were five different highly intelligent species, technological species that evolved more or less simultaneously on the same planet was, was pretty interesting. I just want to say before we just moved off that scene, but I, I want to call out their wardrobe, the, 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 <laughs> the, the, the costumes that uh, the, the reptilians are wearing. Yeah. Yeah. And our costume designer, Robert Blackman, who is a, just a, a, an unqualified genius, um, that they are they are spectacular to look at, those outfits. Yeah. 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 And the makeup, of course, you know, with Michael Westmore and his team. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think especially in, you know, this season and on of Enterprise, like everyone's just really nailing it, you know, like there's yeah. such diversity in the, in the appearance of the Zindi and, and in their costumes and in their makeup. It's just yeah. And, and the aquatics were very cool. And I think there's a scene in this episode where we kind of see their POV looking at Archer through the, you, you know, do, the glass yeah. of their yeah. aquarium. And <laughs> that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great shot. It's like, it's, I don't know if that was Robbie McNeil's, you know, uh, you know, storyboarded that or, but it's a, yeah, there, it's, there they are. Yeah. It's a and I love the ship designs too in the season. They're, they're great. Yeah. A lot of these, it's funny. There's something now, I mean, uh, you know, television has, has changed. Well, you know, I, as storytelling has changed, television feature films have changed. There's, you know, in the, initially the cable era, the HBO era, now the streaming era, 
there's there's a, a, a more sort of whether it's grounded, authentic, realistic, gritty, whatever you want to, however you want to describe it, naturalistic maybe style of storytelling. That it always when I go back and look at these episodes, they're very Star Trek. They're very much of the yeah. Star Trek world and their sort of yeah. look, but they, but they feel so theatrical to me. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. they're, so, they're they're so staged and and. Uh, you know, they and, and I don't even I don't even mean this as a criticism. It's just really an observation of, of what the style of storytelling and oratory was, you know, when we were doing these shows. Yeah, it is very distinctive. Now, and who is this guy? Well, he's like a tree dweller or something, right, Andre? This guy the Arboreals, is, I think. The yeah. Arboreals, that's right. Yeah. I gotta say too, I know, uh, you know, some some people kind of negatively critique Scott Bakula's performance in Enterprise, but I, I think especially in season three and onward, he he just really gets it, and it just starts like turning in great performances like this. And well, yeah, and he, his character clearly evolved because yeah. he was sort of, you know, he was not very sure-footed at the beginning, and that was intentional. Yeah, it was like, uh, what are we doing out here, and are we really ready for this? I mean, he he wasn't quite sure of that himself. You know, unfortunately, in the eyes of some people, that made him look a little wishy-washy, which is not mm-hmm. what you want to see in a captain. Right. I never read it that way. I, I read no. it as being thoughtful and deliberate and, you know, somebody who feels, you know, the weight that he carries on his shoulders very acutely. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I think that you know, Scott's a great actor. He's just... Yeah. And, and by the way, the nicest guy in the universe. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And he just, you know, he he did a great job. And and I think his evolution over the course of the series, you know, is is really interesting and really, really kind of important to the idea of the show. Well, and I think what's so fascinating too about his character and about just the entire crew is like they just they don't know a lot of stuff that like Kirk or, or yeah, Picard yeah. would have known. So a lot of their kind of perceived wishy-washiness comes mm-hmm. primarily just from ignorance like they just they just don't know and i think that's so fascinating to look yeah. back on as as from a writing perspective they're, they're not perfect you know yeah. yeah and uh that was the thing you know when you look back at the original series which you know i, I love as much as i did when i was a kid it's like you know these guys should all be in you know in loony bins i mean <laughs> kirk would have ptsd you know uh, as would anybody else on that crew, given what, you know, given three episodes of their experiences, let alone however many they I did. I think, yeah, then. sitting on the edge of forever alone would have put him in. Like, uh, <laughs> but the, um, the no, it's, inter- it's funny you should mention that about Scott, and I, I second everything you said about him. Just, just that he's a terrific actor and just a delight, a delightful human being and generous and professional, but that he feels in this, it's funny, this episode specifically, he feels very much like an old school Starfleet captain. He's out there brokering a, an agreement between these different species. He's, you know, he, he's, he's basically, he, he, he promises the, uh, the aquatic something that he doesn't know he can deliver and then goes back to Tucker and says, I told him I was going to do this, so you better be able to do it, which feels mm-hmm. like a very Kirk moment to me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So did you guys have a particular character that you liked writing for the best? Uh, it's funny. I loved writing for John Billingsley. I wrote a couple of big episodes for Dr. Flox early on. Um, he's just such a fine actor. And it was just, to me, such an interesting and appealing character, you know, that his kind of, as an outsider on this ship of mostly humans, you know, that his kind of unique perspective I thought was always fun. And, and again, just another lovely, uh, yeah. really kind, generous human being. Um, and I really came to love writing for Jolene. You know, I think she just grew into that character in such a remarkable way that, that um, I think she struggled with being a Vulcan in the early seasons or the first season as much as we struggled writing for her but then later uh it 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 really uh it became a lot of fun writing for her. i wrote an episode um called carbon creek that was like all just mm-hmm. 
that she was really the star of and played her own grandmother and she was she was great and it was great to to have her sort of be the lead character in that episode i i really did enjoy writing for her yeah it was a very fun cast connor trenier was great as trip and scott of course um you know they I liked, um, you know, I, my first episode, I believe, um, for Enterprise featured um, Dominic Keating, Lieutenant Reed. And, and, you know, Brandon made the observation that, you know, when you watch Dominic on camera, it feels like there's always something a little hidden, that there's something a little kind of arcane, or there's something he's mm-hmm. holding back when you look at him, that he's just, there's a odd kind of a mystery about him that, you know, you mm-hmm. couldn't quite put your finger on and we thought, yeah, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of a cool idea, you know, maybe a fun thing to, to, to play with in that character. And so uh, <laughs> say again, I think it's because he's British. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> British yeah. Yeah. And so uh, we did an episode uh, called uh, silent enemy. And, and to your point, Chris, about the ship not being perfect, we didn't have all of our weaponry installed when we originally left Earth, and we come against this sort of implacable enemy that refuses to tell us why they have such hostility toward us and why they've been attacking us. It was a little like um, um, Duel, the old, the Steven Spielberg movie mm-hmm. from the mid-70s, with the trucker who goes crazy against Dennis Weaver or whatever, uh, his character. And we had this mystery about we wanted to do something for Malcolm for his birthday coming up and try to find out what's his favorite food. And nobody seems to know. Mm. So that mystery was sort of, you know, being played in parallel with this whole business about these aliens who were after us for some unknown reason. Yeah. I, remember. I remember that. Episode. Yeah. Now these are the, the world builders here. These are the people who are like the invasion invaders from the fifth dimension I think, and they don't the 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 insectoids don't realize that they're being played here. Yeah, which was an interesting tact, and they were, I believe, combatants in this temporal cold war, the the, the so called world builders. Yeah, yeah, and that was what I I was struggling to remember as I was watching it over as I was rewatching the episode today that they were these these some of these shadowy characters who had their hand on their, their fingers on the, their thumbs on the scale of the yes. you know the the temporal they because they talk in this episode they talk about the time streams and right you know and, and we know they're more advanced because their their skin is smoother yes clearly they look a little, <laughs> it's, it's, they a little it's a little odo like this makeup yeah. it's a little odo like yeah it made me think of the founders. Yeah, the the founders. There you go. Um, but it was it, it to, to me. It still is remarkable to me in this in this full face, you know, prosthetic that that we had on these these reptilian characters here is 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 something that we couldn't do very often. It was yeah. it was it, it's why Lisa, you well know, the forehead of the week syndrome was because it was all yep. it was all the makeup department could could do with the the budgetary and the time constraints that they had was was mm-hmm. to, to, to put these you know little prosthetic pieces together that they could add to people's brows and noses and ears and and when they finally had a chance to sort of build and sculpt a whole new thing it was kind of a big deal we didn't get to do it oh, very yeah. often and also i remember you know during voyager and lisa i'm sure you remember this is when we started to finally have wasn't so much our budget as the cost of doing computer generated special effects was coming down like mm-hmm. every year by eh, maybe not an order of magnitude, but enough that we could start using, you know, 30 seconds of CGI, pure CGI in an episode. Yeah. We had our first fully CGI alien on Voyager, if I remember right, species 8472. 8472, yeah. And they were not. They were not uh, actors in, in makeup and prosthetics. They were fully computer generated. And we could only show them for a few seconds at a time, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, they they look pretty good, though. Yeah, they were. Yeah. And we have not one but two fully CG rendered species in this episode. That's right. Yeah. The aquatics and the insectoids. I, I'm astonished watching this episode. I think 
you know, obviously the technology has come a long way. It's much more sophisticated. The computing power and the artistry of it is, is increased in the last 20 years dramatically. Uh, and some of the stuff shows. Some of it looks a little dated. Some of it, you know, um, isn't up to modern spec. But but some of it looks amazing, you know. Yeah. I'm, and, and I'm... I was watching this episode today, coming off an ep- uh, coming off the show I'm working on now, which is very visual effects heavy, and and grappling with the budget and and nickel and diming shots and counting shots and seconds of shots and trying to tr- trim things down. I I was blown away by the sheer volume of visual effects in this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just the number, the shot count of this is unbelievable. That that we were able to afford, the, and it was in it. It was an expensive show, but it was an expensive show by UPN standards. Right. You know, it, it was not an expensive show by what would be considered modern, you know, Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe the budget was for this season was about two million an episode, and I think like season four had a, a big uh, budget reduction to it. Um, a two million dollar. I just want to say, and, and granted, it, you know, accounting for inflation. Right. You know, this is 20 years ago. That's that's not even the visual effects, the episodic visual effects budget on the show I'm working on now. Yeah, yeah. Right, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, and we didn't have. Okay, Andre, this. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. We just this uh, this set of the uh, the weapon they're in, which with this kind of has this you know gyroscope, this rotating kind of gyroscope mechanism in the middle of it. Was that a prop? Did they build that thing, or was that I can I couldn't remember. I pretty, I'm pretty sure they built that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, according to my research, it was a uh, reconstructed prop. You know, they always like to recycle stuff. So part of that is actually uh, part of the, the mine that uh, the Romulans used in that uh, season two episode, you know, where like the uh, mine was on the ship. And so that's was that uh, Shiba episode, Minefield? That I believe was, it was. Um, yeah, I believe it was. Oh, yeah. Minefield. The um, that's so funny, yeah. But no, but it's a, it's because it was it it's such a cool piece of of art direction and set decoration, and it's spinning away there in the in the center of the set. I I looked at that and I was like, is that is that animated or is that real? I was like, yeah. I couldn't even tell. Yeah. Also, I love this idea here um, of the kind of commandos, you know, on, on yes. Enterprise. And I feel like that was an idea that was often talked about in previous tracks, but this was the first time that you guys really were like, let's, let's do this. Let's go for it. Mm-hmm. Do you wonder if you, if you, either of you remember kind of where that came from and, and why was it decided this was a good time for it? My recollection and correct me if I'm wrong, Andre, was it was yet another thing that came out of Rick's office was mm-hmm. that it was, it was sort of part and parcel of um, the whole we're, we're trends, you know, there's a threat to earth. We're going out into this expanse of dangerous and uncharted Space and 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 your scientific enterprises, you know, shakedown crews of scientific discovery is being put on hold, you know, because there's a threat to Earth and and we have to put soldiers on board. And it it's funny. It reminds me a little bit of the like the if you read the sort of Napoleonic Wars, you know, the uh, like the tales of the British Navy, like the Patrick O'Brien novel. There's the sailors, and then there's always a there's always a regiment of Marines on board the ship, you know. Um, uh the Mako thing, I I think that was if I recall, was largely came from just they liked it that it was a cool acronym that sounded like that was the name of a shark. It yeah. doesn't if you <laughs> it doesn't actually make any sense. It's like military attack command ops or something that like is <laughs> just a, a total mishmash of something that doesn't even sound like a real organization. Although in a way but it, it was, you know, kinda like they were trying to almost hide their own purpose because they were right. a little embarrassed about the fact that we needed to do something like this, you know, in, in the, you know, the pilot, you know, earth had moved through a sort of a new dark ages and we'd finally come out of the, you know, the other side of this horrible, these horrible events in the 21st century. And now we've got starships and Zephyr and Cochran and all of that stuff is many decades in the past, but, you know, the feeling was that we're finally an enlightened species and to now discover that, in fact, well, we really need to resort to um, 
you know, means that might not be completely consistent with our values in order to defeat this implacable enemy um, was a little unsettling. And obviously we were writing these shows, you know, Enterprise premiered two weeks after 9-11 and the Iraq war uh, had started uh, and that was all very much on our minds, you know, in the in the process of, uh, you know, writing this series and specifically, I think this season, you know, there are a lot of sort of analogies. Yeah, I mean, I have to, I have to imagine this the whole like attack on Earth and right. ramifications of that were, were probably heavily influenced by by nine eleven, which which might potentially explain why the the the, the Mako team seems so woefully unprepared when they actually go into the D ship. They just in there. They don't have they don't have any kind of body armor or 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 heavier weaponry or anything like that. They just you know it's like they we we supposedly put a team of of Marines on board the ship, but they just basically seem like they could just as easily be Reed's guys with different uniforms. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's true. You would almost imagine they would have like personal shields going on. That was, that was more of thing. You, you would whatever. expect them to be a little more like, even, you know, if, if the, if the idea was they were, you know, the, you know, Navy SEALs or yeah. SAS or something like that, you'd think they would have been kitted out a little more to, yeah. you yeah. know, to take out the, the guys. But it's funny you should mention that, Drew. Guys, it's certainly true that, that I think, you know, part of um, the universe of Star Trek is that we've hopefully evolved beyond the need for standing armies and militaries and stuff like that. Yet the, the original series, it was such a quasi-military organization right. in a, right. you know, a heavily armed ship, you know, yeah. with space cops. Yeah, and, and certainly it has military terminology, you know, captain, lieutenant, right. you know, it's... Right. The, the hierarchy feels very military. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, no, we did get, I, I, I remembered we did this season get very cool uh, crew jackets because okay. they were the, Oh, the Mako crew they, jackets. They were these made, they were these uh, like black nylon bomber jackets with all the Mako patches. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so did you guys spend much time on the set? Not as much you as we would like. Yeah, or I did not. I know Andre, you may have met, spent more time down there than than I did. I, I I think for two my for two reasons. One was that we were just too busy trying to keep ahead of the scripts that you didn't have time really to go down and and work with the actors or directors. And and the other reason was I I don't really feel it was encouraged. I don't think yeah. you know that Rick and Brandon really wanted the writers down there. I think once we had delivered our scripts, there was a sense it was it was out of our hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he. I think I think it's fair to say that you know, um, the perception was the, among the higher ups that the writers are there to write and they should be you know working in the writers' room or in their offices and cranking out scripts and stories and doing revisions and so forth and not spending that much time on set. It wasn't actively discouraged, but it certainly wasn't encouraged. And uh, I thought that that was kind of the norm until I you know, started talking to other people on other shows who were like, oh, are you kidding me? When my script is shooting, I'm, I'm, I'm there from you know, start to finish. Yeah. And that became yeah. my experience when I, I, when it, I was on the shows. I was, I was all, always on the set when my script was shooting. You know. Yeah, and I think given, I think what Andre just said, sort of given the pressure of trying to produce 24, at, at this point, 24 episodes a season, it, it's completely fair to say, yes, we are, are, you know, we were needed elsewhere. You know, we, we, you know, we needed to be producing scripts. But uh, as Andre also points out, you know, it was not really a training ground for turning writers into producers, you right, know, right. It's like, go, you know, go, go to these meetings, go to the production meeting, go to set, work with a director, learn. If you want to do this, learn how to produce your episodes. It was not, right. that was not, the, uh, that was not the norm there when I was there. No, yeah, not, not. And you know, that's after seven years of um, next generation and seven seasons of, DS9 and seven seasons of Voyager. I mean, it was a pretty well-oiled machine and, you know, it was yeah. working really well. And that's one of the, one of the ways that it worked so well. So, and, you know, there was very little need, I think, from the perspective of the directors, um, 
to have the writer available um, because most of those guys had directed multiple episodes, knew the actors, knew the show, and you know. Mm-hmm. Although I would argue that it's it's funny. I, I think that is one, I, absolutely true. You know, I God, I'm, I'm looking at this thing now, and I go, "It is that mine." They did, they did stick that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, uh, I I would I would argue that the well-oiled machine that such that it was a, a group of incredibly professional and skilled and talented people. It did contribute to a certain sameness yes. in the theory. You sure. know that that they all kind of are were produced in a similar fashion. The there was a repertory company of directors who they would use over and over again. And, you know, right. there was a, they, they were expected to look the episodes. There was an expectation that an episode of Star Trek would look like an episode of Star Trek. Right. And, um, right. Uh, yeah. There was a lot of resistance to pushing those boundaries, which, you know, on one level you understand it. And um, had we pushed farther, maybe some of the shows would have been more interesting, but would that have turned off a part of the audience as well, giving them something that was very different from what they expected? It's, it's a risk. Yeah. And I think there was a certain risk aversion built into the franchise by that point. This weapon looks pretty cool. I got to say yeah, that is pretty, pretty cool. cool. Yeah. So the idea here is like, it's creating like a, a temp temporal fields just all over the place and kind of fucking sure, with your yeah, tape, sure. you know, so I don't that's know what it is, but it's, um, <laughs> It's big, doing something nice. Yeah, that's the idea. Big yeah, room. Big room. <laughs> yeah, sure, Peter. That's what it's doing. <laughs> well, I was going to ask a question, but I won't ask it now. <laughs> I feel so bad for the aquatics here. They just, they all are dead now. And it's like, oh, these yeah. poor guys. Are just Although it's pretty, pretty good for, for the. very the, good, yeah. Yeah, for the CG of the day and the, yeah. and the budget that we had to work with, that's a, it's a, that, that ship, you know, the, the glass breaking and the fluid coming out and freezing, and it's a, it's yeah. a pretty cool effect. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah should have stayed yeah. in the ocean. <laughs> Archer, Archer, talked them, in, Archer talked them into shit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talks them into self-genocide. Yeah, thanks, Captain Archer. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, this was, uh, it, it's funny, this, the actor uh, Stephen Culp, uh, who plays Major Hayes, the leader of the Makos, who's a, who's a, a lovely guy and a talented actor I had worked with on uh, Desperate Housewives. He played the Bree character's husband. Oh, that's right. And um, Rex Vandekamp. And I... Uh, I, I had the, uh, I, I don't know if, you, if would you would say it the honor or the distinction of uh, having my name as a writing credit on the two episodes that he dies in. Killed him twice. I was credited with the episode of Desperate Housewives where he dies, and I'm co-credited with the episode of this where he dies. <laughs> well, we now know that yeah. you specifically wrote this section of, of the episode, so right. it's, uh, yeah. it is all your fault. <laughs> yeah, he did uh, uh, he coincidentally was a uh, Steve was a uh, a parent at my kid's school, so I would see him a lot at oh, school right. functions and stuff. And he's a lovely guy. He, he to his credit, he never held it against me. <laughs> he was, he was yeah, just, we uh, saw him. Uh, we saw him at a um, we had drinks with him at a Trek convention in Las Vegas a few years ago. Oh wow! Yeah, I always liked Steve. I thought he was very good in the part, and um, yeah, and he clearly has gone on to have a. A successful career post being killed on Enterprise. <laughs> Although I will say, and I don't, I do not have, I, you know, I, I take Andre's word for it that he wrote the first half of this episode and I wrote the second. Mm-hmm. I, because I, I, I don't, it all does kind of blur together. Although I do have a, an actual memory of writing this, this scene because the idea of him being hit by a disruptor blast as he's dematerializing Right. And you not realizing that he's been fatally shot until he appears on the transporter pad. I remember writing that and thinking it was pretty cool. That is yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, because they always, it's always like a cop out in other Trek shows. You know, the phasers yeah. come in, oh, we transported just in time. <laughs> My favorite version of that was on the original series with the yeah. circuses, is the machine guns are drilling them and they're beaming up and then they're just fine. Yeah, yep. it's yeah. fine. Um, oh, I guess we have another scene. I was going to. Talk more about the major there, but we got to see oh. between that. 
He's dead now, so no, he's. I mean, no, he's, he's, he's about back to for a minute, and I. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, he's all. He's, got, he's, he's mortally wounded. He's mortally wounded. Yeah, he's got um, a brutal death scene coming. Uh, yeah, and it was a good. I think Dominic is really good in this episode. Who who plays Lieutenant Reed? Who um, I think he and uh, uh, the the way that um, arc closed out with with him and Major Hayes, which he's called, is uh, I think it's really. I think it worked really well. I think it's really yeah. potent. Nice. It's a, it's a nice moment. There was a dynamic between them that was you know felt pretty fresh. You know, mm-hmm. kind of a rivalry and you know, taking each other's measure and not really knowing who's kind of supposed to be in charge here. And yeah, that was a good, uh, that, that was a good call, I think, in the development of that character. Gave the love the thing beyond just being the muscle. Yeah. I just love the, the big scope of the battle scenes too. I mean, I think for a lot of Trek fans, we always kind of wish we could have seen more and, you know, we wanted yeah. to see Wolf 359 happen. We wanted yeah. to see all this stuff happen. Right. And yet here it is. I mean, you actually get like big scope for in some ways the, the first time in, in Trek. And Watching this now, it astonishes me. I mean, we, we mentioned before that we, we could, uh, I, I, my guess is that most of the time you didn't see it because we couldn't afford it. Of course. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. That, you know, that I'm looking at that and so much of that battle with all those different ships and, Mm-hmm. it's like that, that we actually put it on screen i was kind of like wow yeah and that was at this point all cgi we never had a physical model of the nx01 yeah you know, in fact in in star trek uh, voyager um i think we boxed up the model at the beginning of season five or something, something and like we had the hero shots that were done with the model but Everything else was CGI from then that point on, which you know yeah. obviously gives you the flexibility of doing things like blowing the ship up whenever you want to, <laughs> you know, or damaging it severely in a way that you would never do with that beautiful six foot long fiberglass model. But uh, yeah. Now what I and find so weird about this—not weird, but it's creepy to look at. I think you see this guy's rib cage, like in the shots where he's been shot at. And I'm just mm-hmm. when I'm watching this again, I was just like, oh my god, that's. It's a pretty gory yeah. wound. Although I think I may have made, I may have commented this on this before. Is it doesn't strike me as a wound that would have been made by some kind of energy weapon. It's mm-hmm. like it's mm-hmm. it's pretty bloody. You know, it seems like it would have been more like like a burn, like mm-hmm. something right. that had burned through him. And whatever, you know. But I will I will comment though. Watching that scene, it's like, oh, there's Doctor Flock. It's like, how many minutes into this episode are we when he finally appears? <laughs> That's the trick when you have so many regulars trying to get each of them something to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Servicing that big ensemble cast. And, yeah. you know, when obviously when, you know, when Scott needs to be front and center, you know. Yeah. But I'm reminded too, watching this, how great those sets were, you know, they were really impressive, wonderful sets that were built. And I had the, the privilege of watching them get built uh, because I was there for, you know, the final seasons of Voyager. And then um, when we started doing Enterprise, I was on the writing staff and, and, um, you know, watching those sets go up as we were developing, uh, you know, the the first season episodes. It's like, wow, they're really putting some effort into this and Mm -hmm. a lot of metal and, you know, two story sets and the shuttle pod bay and engineering were, were just great. Well, they were, you know, they were amortized to, to run, you know, for a show that everybody assumed would run for seven seasons. So they, you know, they, they spent the money on them, but yeah. And, and I, I totally agree. And that it, they were really beautifully designed by Herman Zimmerman and, and constructed and, you know, um, uh, but beyond that, when you would, when you would go down there you, and, and walk into them, particularly when they were lit up, when all those, it was the first show, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was the first show where they had actually were feeding live video feeds onto those screens. So it wasn't just the, you know, the backlit sort of cells from the art department. Right. They were actually, yeah, we, we had actual, you know, that was, um, you know, LCD monitors, flat screens were pretty new back then. And yeah, and if, that you change that they could program them to if yeah. it was tactical data or navigation data or scientific data that when you walked onto those sets and and everything was lit up and turned on, you yeah. know, I mean, it felt yeah. like you're it felt like you're on a spaceship. It was like it was for for Star Trek, you know, someone who grew up on Star Trek and loved Star Trek and and dreamed of being a part of that 
universe, you know, just being able to stand on that ship, you know, stand on the transporter pad or sit in the captain's chair and walk into engineering was like, yeah. it was like a dream come true. I do love this scene here in terms of like Archer's character. Cause it, 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 he's making a very utilitarian argument here. He's like, I have to save the fucking galaxy here. Flocks. I don't <laughs> care if she's not healthy yeah. enough to come. She's coming. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, I don't, it's, I don't know if, if Picard necessarily would have done it, you know, it's it kind of distinctive to, to Archer here is he's, he's like, listen, we, we have to do this. There's, there's no other way around this situation. Well, it sort of goes to what I was talking about a little earlier about, about how this episode to me, it feels like he's toughened or matured into, into a, yeah. into a captain. It's like Picard might not have done it, but Kirk would have done it. Kirk would have done it. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that was absolutely a big part of Archer's evolution, I'd say, is going from that, you know, weighing the pros and cons maybe a little too much to being, you know, recognizing he's in a situation where he needs to be decisive and that there's no room for a lot of, you know, hand-wringing or, you know, arguing about what needs to happen. It is it is so fascinating to look at Enterprise, how, like, when you really think about it, like, the humans shouldn't be the center of attention, in, in this galaxy and yet right. th they are because i think they kind of there's that human quality which does get commented on quite often in the show that is very distinctive from other species and they kind of just like force their way in there and are mm -hmm. able to cut through all the minutiae of of a lot of these cultures that um kind of well, draw funny, a lot of conflict to that i think it's uh i think i mean much has been written about it i i think it is a fair observation of, of particularly the original series, which is the idea of, of us going out into the universe and trying to impose our humanity and human values on other species. Yeah. Um, but from a purely sort of storytelling, you know, as, as storytellers, as television writers, you're, you know, you're humans are your point of view characters. Sure. I mean, yeah. like, you're, you're telling the story through their eyes. They're the guys out there learning this and discovering this. Yeah. So. It is so great to see in, in Enterprise how it's like they're, they're becoming the humans of, of Kirk era where it's like, they are kind of where the Federation is, is, you know, and you're finding out why that is and like, why, why is, you know, Starfleet headquarters on earth and, and things yeah. like that. And, yeah. And that was also yeah, to watch. kind of an underserved element of the, you know, of the premise. We didn't really kind of embrace that right away. Um, and we probably should have been a little clearer in terms of our intentions. Um, it certainly started to work that way. Um, you know, you wonder certainly the way that the, the, the pilot was set up, you know, well, what are we doing out there exactly? Maybe, maybe we're not really ready. And, and, and there are other intelligent species that are out there and have been out there a lot longer than we have. And, and somehow we got to get from there to the United Federation of Planets, you know, in the 23rd yes. century. And we are presumably a dominant, if not the dominant species in the Federation. It's kind of assumed that we are. Mm -hmm. And that's a tricky transition to try to pull off. But, um, you know, trying to do those sort of prequel type episodes was always a challenge sure. um, for us to try to figure out, well, we don't really want to be explicit about, you know, Oh, how did the Federation come to be? Is that really that interesting? You know, it's kind of politics. I always found it interesting. I think we, and I did think we lay, I mean, I don't think we ever told that story. We didn't tell that story per right. se, but I think there are fun moments where you start to see the building blocks, like the yeah. stories with the, where, with the Andorians, you know, exactly. um, and, and how what starts out is a very sort of belligerent relationship, how you know you know that that is going to end up with the Andorians being right. members of the Federation. And, and is it in some part because of Archer's, I don't know if I would go so far as to call it a friendship, but Archer's relationship with Tran, you know, mm -hmm. that, that, that ultimately was the toe in the door that led to, you know, the Andorians being, you know, signatories to the federation right you know uh, well, and, well i think that yeah never told that yeah well and, and andre we had you on the show to talk about the the forge from season four how there's right. that episode or that moment in there where uh i forget his name but he's like the vulcan ambassador to earth mm -hmm. and he's just so talking cool. about how like 
flummoxed Vulcans are by humans. They're just like, we don't understand you. <laughs> you manage to have you have like multiple personalities going on in your in your right. head at one time, and it's it's like sometimes you act like a Vulcan, you're super logical. Other times you're as angry as a Klingon, and we don't get yeah. it. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. And yeah. I like that idea of like humans are like this weird sort of. I don't know, in between species where it's like, we're not well, necessarily defined by just one type of right. personality. Well, and it's funny. I think it's, you know, when you talk about why are, are, are humans or earthlings or Terrans or what, what you want to call them, this, this sort of, um, the, the, the Federation is their party is because they're the assholes who said, Hey, we're holding a party. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> no, it, it, yeah. it's like that it was, whether it's arrogance, or confidence or presumption or whatever it was about the human species that said to the Vulcans and the Andorians and everybody else going, we're doing this guys. Right. You know, I think right. that's, I think that's partly what explains it. Although we got in a lot of trouble with the fans in the first season with the Vulcans and that, and I actually had a lot of respect for Rick for this was this idea that the Vulcans don't entirely trust us. Right. It's like, they consider us to be obviously illogical, but immature and unprepared. And they're keeping secrets from us because they don't feel we can be trusted with them, you know? And this idea, what by later Star Trek, you know, uh, shows in uh, series and movies, the human Vulcan relationship is, is the sort of primary relationship within the Federation, mm -hmm. right. you know, it's a special relationship. But I think what Rick wanted to do, and I applaud, was that it wasn't always that way. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is great how the the whole Vulcan arc really of Enterprise is, is very interesting. I mean, you see so many yeah. facets yeah, of their they, uh, culture. They put Paul on the ship, you know, basically for all intents and purposes to spy on us. It's like, it's like make sure those guys aren't going to get in trouble out there. Right, yeah. right. Or don't uh, get us into trouble through their, you know. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Don't make us look bad. You know, don't make, sure they're bad. make us look bad. <laughs> Well, guys, uh, the episode ended a few minutes ago, so it's, uh, you know. Yeah, I know, and it was a cliffhanger. When I watched it, when I watched it today, I, I forgot that that, that that and Zero Hour were two, I had forgotten they were two-parter, exactly. and that we got to the end of it, and I was like, oh, my God, what's, you know, what's going to happen? What happened in that exactly. <laughs> Uh, that's fantastic. Um, but yeah, thank you guys both for being here. I hope we can have you back on here soon. Oh, it's um, a pleasure. It's always great to see you, Peter and Lisa, of course. And uh, Chris, we see each other from time to time. I hope we'll see each other yeah. again soon in the new year. Yes, I hope so. In the new year. Yes, it's, it's, it's always delightful and fun. Uh, I will do it. And anytime you guys will have me, I'm thrilled to do it. That's Wonderful. great. Fantastic. Um, before we go, uh, what, what are you guys up to right now? Chris, I know you're on a certain show involving a large reptilian of your own. Yeah, I don't think it's a, it's not a secret. I'm working uh, on a, a show that's uh, been in development. Uh, it's, it's legendary studios for Apple TV plus set in the Godzilla monster verse. So basically taking those, the current, it's, it's not the old original Toho Godzilla films, but the current crop of legendary feature films and doing a television series set within that universe. But the, what we've been trying to do, and I hope and I think somewhat successfully, is making it a show that's more focused on on the people than the monsters. It's it's I like to say it's not a monster show. It's the show about people that happens to have monsters in it. Um, we uh, just wrapped the first season at the end of last year. Uh, I think it's great. I'm very excited about it. It should be on uh, Apple TV Plus this fall. I don't have a release date yet, but sometime this fall. I look forward to the fall and and also uh, it's been announced kirk douglas is in it or not kirk douglas jesus um kurt russell's in it and uh i'm very excited for that um, yeah kurt russell and uh and his son who is also an actor wyatt russell are yeah. both in it and yeah. uh and great fun yes unfortunately his name is not snake pliskin but whatever yeah. <laughs> yeah. um andre how about you uh what's new in oh, i got nothing world? <laughs> no we we finished uh third season of the orville last year and uh i did a show called the end is nigh that seth mcfarland created with bill nye and brandon braga i, I really enjoyed that. that show that was a lot of fun yeah we shot it in montreal and second half of 2021 it aired this summer on peacock and um yeah and I, i've got a book that should come out in, in the fall about the orville and other than that, just kind of looking for the next gig. We have not yet heard whether there will be a fourth season of the Orville. I think Seth would very much like to do one. 
but that's ultimately going to be up to Disney, which is our, our home now. I hadn't heard about this book. Is it a, a making of or a science no, behind the Orville? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I'm okay, really <laughs> allowed to say too much about it. It is not a making of or a science of. I see. Uh, yeah. It's not really. I'm intrigued. Yeah. Secrets of. But it's <laughs> yes. fun. It's fun, I think. Amazing. Awesome. Um, well, guys, thank you so much for being here. Uh, you know, if, uh, Lisa, what's new in your world? I, we haven't done this podcast in a little while. What's, what's new? What's happening? Yeah. Well, I'm actually working on a scripted podcast uh, called Red great. Scepter, uh, which is actually a murder mystery. Uh, so wow. I'm having a lot of fun cool. with that. I, I've oh, never done cool. a murder mystery before. And so the, the plotting it was kind of challenging. Yeah, I bet. That's so cool. And uh, when, when will that be released? Yeah. You know, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm just in the middle of, I, I turned in the first draft, I'm waiting for notes, and so it'll still be a little while before they actually record it and, and uh, publish it or produce right. it. Very well, cool. Wonderful, though. I, I love audio dramas so much. And yeah, I, uh, me too. I, I look forward to, uh, I mean, anything that you do, really, but um, that one in particular <laughs> would be, will be fantastic. Yeah, sounds fun. Let us know. How about you, Peter? Um, you know, I just submitted that short story. I have a few nonfiction books coming out in the spring, which is uh, exciting. And uh, I'm on a deadline now for another one, uh, which is fun, too. But, uh, you know, and looking for work besides that. So it's fun times. And doing these podcasts, it's always uh, such yeah. a joy. Such a joy. Yeah. But uh, I always love talking about Star Trek. And it's uh, hopefully we'll be keeping on doing this for a very long time. Well, I, I, I want to thank you before we sign off. I, I do want to thank you guys because it is, as we mentioned before, it's, it's 20 years ago. And, and so many of these I haven't seen and, and I haven't really had reason to sit down and, and watch them again. And, and, you know, the job was hard at times. And sometimes you don't want to look back at something that was challenging. You just move on to the next thing. But it has been an opportunity, an opportunity for me to look back at the work we did uh and and be proud of it so i'm i'm grateful for that yeah That's same awesome. here thank you so much glad you guys are doing this well hey thank you um so for listeners out there uh if you want to get in touch with us you can find us at uh, trexperts br on twitter and uh trexperts briefing room on uh instagram um so until next time uh, for lisa and my found, myself uh, thanks very much for being here and uh the briefing room is now closed Scott, what do you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, the bridge control started going crazy. Levers shifting by themselves, buttons being pushed, instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened. As if his ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement.